Hello and welcome to the Berman Hour Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Berman. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week is MC Heiser, otherwise known as Matt Conspiracy. Matt Heiser. You know him. He runs the Skid Row Garage. Now, Matt has been running the Skid Row Garage in a actual garage on his personal property for a long, long time. That finally came to a conclusion last year, and since then, he has done a couple of GoFundMes in order to get the Skid Row Garage legitimized into a proper venue space in York, Pennsylvania. So I wanted to have him on the Berman Hour podcast to talk about all that. Needless to say, I mean, we've known each other for 25 years, so we had a lot of catching up to do, and so I hope that you enjoy all of that. Shout out to... Uh, Travis from Blog 13. We talk about you. Shout out to Dan from the Getting It Out podcast, which is a great podcast as well. He had interviewed Matt a couple times as well. Again, we're just trying to drum up encouragement and interest and some financial help for the uh, renovations at this new Skid Row Garage in downtown York, Pennsylvania, which is going to be a great new music venue. Now, I will put all of the pertinent financial information and the links in the podcast description of this podcast that you're listening to. But for all intents and purposes now, just go to Instagram and go to Skid Row Garage and give them a follow so you can stay up to date on the shows they'll be doing, the shows that Matt will be promoting at other venues throughout York and Harrisburg and Lancaster, and of course, the status of Skid Row Garage. Aiming for a soft open sometime this summer, which is very, very exciting. And, man, I love this guy. It was great to catch up and talk with him. So I hope that you enjoy this podcast. In case you missed it, Divided Heaven is a new record out. The record came out February 4th on AF Records in North America and Gunner Records in Europe. It's called Oblivion, and it is available now. A quick note about the vinyl. It's no secret that there is a big traffic jam at vinyl pressing plants. I got the test pressings way back in October. So we thought that test pressings in October, the record drops in February. We thought we would have the actual records in hand by February or March. Well, it turns out that it's going to be May, but the good news is it's almost fucking May. So if you ordered a record, thank you for your patience. If you have yet to order a record, do it now. And you're probably going to have it in about a month. Go to DividedHeaven.com. Okay, let's jump into this interview with MC, Matt Conspiracy, from the Skid Row Garage. And of course, the great band, Old Tigers. Let's go. I, I joked with my wife recently. I was like, fuck, I guess we're stuck in Pennsylvania now that we bought this place and we're going to do a Skid Row Garage for real. And she was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh no what was the exit plan before I, I don't know just somewhere warm <laughs> yeah you're always going to south carolina or key west and stuff right you like it down there right one of the guys in, that started old tigers years ago he was originally from charleston so like we kind of had like a lot of trips down there just because he had a lot of friends that would come see our band so like charleston's gorgeous beautiful city great food and like i don't know i fell in love with key west when i went down there on a cruise probably a decade ago. And then I decided at some point I'm going to come down here and drive the overseas highway. So like I did that 
probably five years ago now, I flew into Fort Lauderdale, rented a car and just did it. And like, yeah. like punk rock story on that one. The old drummer, the Bouncing Souls, was playing with uh, Joan Jett's band Mm -hmm. on one of the cruise ships parked at Key West. And I met his girlfriend at the smallest bar in Key West, which is literally like a breezeway where they set up a bar. And he wandered in later. And I was like, you played in the Bouncing Souls. I booked your band like 10 years ago. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's yes. Small world. Like I like I heard somebody just yell, hey, come in here and drink. And it was like three in the afternoon. And I was like. That's what Key West is about. And she's like, you know, it's just her and the bartender and she's talking. And I'm like, she's like, where are you from? I was like, I'm from Pennsylvania. She's like, oh, my boyfriend's from New Jersey. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, and you can tell, like, you know, tattoos and T-shirts and whatnot. Like, you know. That's our tribe, man. That's our fucking tribe. Yeah. What the fuck is up with your name? I I knew you was Matt Conspiracy forever. You just sent me your email address and Matthew Heiser, Matthew T. Heiser. Well, that's my professional one. <laughs> and everybody everybody now, like my best friend Alita, she was talking to me one point about you and referring to you as MC. And I remember saying to her, I'm not sure I fucking know this guy. Who is this guy? And then well, she showed me a picture and I was like, oh, is so is MC Matt Conspiracy? Yeah, it like when I was in the band uh, TMI generation with Josh and um, Joe Mengus and everybody, we started using email and boy, I was not the best typer. So <laughs> email and uh, aim, I started just being like, well, MC, M period, C period for Matt conspiracy rather than <laughs> typing it every time. And it just stuck because we, we recorded something and they put like, everybody had a cool nickname. Like Josh was Josh, the rocker or something like that. And Joey meltdown. And, um, Joey no. meltdown. That's right. But you don't see me walking around the streets of Lancaster as Jeff Monster anymore. No. You I, know? Yeah, Jeff, I don't know. Jeff Cursed. <laughs> it's Dude, one of I, those things that just stuck. Yeah. Like I, even at work, people like when I when I got where I forget. People oh, call you MC at work or they call you Matt? Um a lot of people call me MC at work. Like one of the places I got hired, like the hiring manager was like a friend of mine's mom, and she's like what do you want? You're like, do you want it to be MC for like what you're known as or Matt or Matthew? I was like, I was like, just Matt. That's fine. That that's yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still living in the same house that you were in? This is great podcast material, by the way. Are you still <laughs> on the house on uh, what is it? Market Street? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you still have the property that has the Skid Row garage. You're just not. Yeah. Um, you know, before all this happened, the plan was like either this summer or next summer to look for like you know, a single family home to move into. Cause this is sort of an investment property with three units and technically two garages out back. But, uh, you know, things kind of changed and that, that, that plans on hold for a little bit longer, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Are you able to use the garage again? I remember when you first got shut down, it was labeled as condemned, whether that was accurate or not, but that was just to kind of keep you out of it. Right. But you can get back in. Yeah. So by like Monday morning, I called the uh, zoning officer, Steve Buffington. I was like, hey, man, like, what do I got to do to get into my garage? Because he had kind of given me the heads up like that night. He's like, look, he's like, put your stuff away. I was like, because I even joked with him. I was like, hey, man, my motorcycle's sitting out in the rain. Can I put it in my garage? He's like, yeah, just put it in there. He's like, he's like, call me Monday. We'll get this sorted out. He's like, he's like, I'm putting this notice on here. So this does not happen again. I'm like, okay, good enough. Like, that's yeah. Like, and again, like I've said, I was like, 
I had been waiting for this day for 12 plus years, but, um, yeah. So I called Monday and by Monday he was like, I've heard from a lot of people on your behalf. And, um, he's like, all you got to do is just send me an email stating, you know, you will only be using your garage for normal residential purposes. And, you know, you can take that condemn notice down. I was like, well, that's easy enough. I'll, I sent the email and, you know, first step done, I can use my garage. Yeah. Do you still use it as a practice space? Yeah. Yeah. It's, right. I mean, that's what the initial thing was when I bought the house that we just used it as a practice space. Cause honestly, the way it was like studded out in there and stuff, it looked like somebody was trying to like live in there. Yeah. Um, there was like a fold out couch and like random, like really old, probably like scavenged furniture. And, um, we just sort of used the one room that was studded out as a practice space and, you know, still set up exactly as it always was other than a little bit more equipment piled around right now because right. of yeah, collecting sure. a lot of stuff over the past seven months. I want to say that you and I met in 1997 or 1996. So we'll just say 25 years, but yeah, I roughly. cannot, I cannot remember the last time that you and I had a one-on-one conversation where it wasn't at, a show with loud cacophonous music. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. I remember sitting in your first van with Mark from part of the problem and we were just teenagers, but you, because I think you're a couple years older than me, maybe, but you had your license before me. I know that. Yeah. And you had a van before anybody else. And we were sitting in the van and it was like, the type of van that your parents would tell you not to get into. It was like, Oh that yeah. That kind thing. Of van that, that was like carpets a, and stuff. Right? Oh yeah, dude. I bought that from some old guy who bought it brand new and he used that thing. He hauled a camper with it and him and his wife and two kids, like it had four captain's chairs and he had put shag carpet all over it. Yeah. One of those vans that gets like seven miles per gallon, but like <laughs> it makes up for it with swagger and shit. Like it yeah. was, it was Comfortable awesome. Comfortable as hell. Comfortable yeah. as hell. I remember that thing had dual gas tanks too. So it held like 42 gallons in fuel and like these days that would be like, well, taking out a loan to get gas, which everybody right. jokes about, but 44 gallons is $200 in gas these days. Yeah, for sure. Holy shit. Do you remember when we met? I, fuck, I don't know exactly. I mean, it had to have been when the cursed and underground conspiracy played. Yeah, probably like Yip Rock or something like that. If we want to, or one, two XU before that. Yeah, it would definitely be one two X U on this side of the river. It would probably would it have been the Bear Station or the Liberty? Could have been Liberty Fire Hall. They had a uh, what was going on over here at that point too. We had um, High Energy and the Phoenix. Yeah, the Phoenix, or depending on what what specific time frame it was, it could have been it was the Phoenix or the Zodiac because it changed names like three times. It yeah. was the big city. And then I think it was the Phoenix next, and then it ended as the Zodiac. I mean, it was always the same place, and I think pretty much the same people, but they just had issues, so they kept changing the name sort of the way a lot of construction companies do when they get a (laughs) slap-on-the-wrist lawsuit. They just become, you know, J.L. Miller and Sons instead of J.L. Miller Construction. Sure. uh, Yeah. I mean, do you remember a lot about the late 90s in this local scene? Does it stay with you? It does and it doesn't like I'll talk to people and we'll bring something up and I'll be like, holy shit. And then it just like floods back. But just like just 
start like if I was trying to pick something out, I'd be like, I don't know. I have a sh- I have a like a folder of all these old flyers. Um, Travis from here in Lancaster, he was in um, Blag Thirteen and Side Project. He yeah. runs a Instagram page. It's like Seven One Seven Flyers or Show Flyers, something like that. Oh, that's Travis that runs that. Yeah. So he okay. he took and I'm I'm not even joking. It was. I put it in like one of those record store day bags. Like it's probably two and a half inch thick stack of flyers that I had collected over the years. And he scanned them all in and just going through that. It was like, Oh my God. Like I, I forgotten, but like, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I remember being at this show and I remember this. And like, I had been telling, I'd been, when I did that, I was telling Travis, I was like, man, I was like, the one thing I remember as a kid is like, I remember being freshly 16, just got my license and going into the Phoenix or Zodiac and seeing all the Sunday matinee shows that CI Records did. Yeah. And one of them that stuck out because as I got older, I realized how cool it was, was Warzone played one of those shows. And I remember being like, you know, a punk kid with a studded leather jacket and a big mohawk. And I remember rabies being like, look at these punk kids in the back with the mohawks. That's fucking cool. And like not having a clue who they were when I was 16, because, you know, I was just discovering this music scene and then you know, two or three years later, I was like, Oh shit, Warzone, this, this band rolls. And I'm like, I saw those guys. And then, you know, obviously he died that same year. Um, but he found the flyer and I think it was March of 2000 or March of 97. They played a Sunday matinee at the Zodiac or Phoenix, whatever on Beaver street in York. And I was like, thank God that that wasn't just some memory that I made up, but yeah. Yeah. I have a, a soft spot for Warzone as well. I didn't see them at that show. I saw them at the Chameleon when they were touring with the business. Oh, nice. That's Violent Society play. I can't remember who the fourth band was, but yeah, you know, I was smaller then and really intimidated by like, I, I remember this dude, we called him scary Steve. He, he was from <laughs> Reading and, and uh, he would wear the baseball hat that said Reading and he was just kind of a bigger guy, but he was, uh, years later, I met him, and I, I remember having some beers with him, and I was like, "Oh, I'm glad that, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't kill me before." But I was just so terrified of that th- that crew, and especially if, like, you know, when the business were playing around here, there were always fucking shady people and Nazis that would come out anyway. So, yeah, what I liked about that show, Rabies came off the stage at the Chameleon and, and sang from the floor, so he kind of had this bubble around him. So it was like, you know, I felt safe. Yeah, it's such a dangerous thing. But he kind of had that that Papa Bear mentality that I appreciated. Yeah. And that that was sort of I mean, that was a signature thing he did for a lot of years where he was like, I'm going to come on to the floor like you guys just, you know, yeah, I'm one of you kind of thing. Yeah, it was never like I'm up here. You're down there. He was like, I'm we're on the level playing field. I have a love-hate relationship with that 717 Flyers Instagram page. It's it's not love-hate. How do I say this? Sometimes I get angry at myself if I find myself reverting back to nostalgia too much or if I find myself in a a period where I need to be or want to be creative and all I'm doing is focusing on the past. And it's an interesting thing with social media now with these flashback Fridays and throwback Thursdays. I know those aren't really like the cool thing to do anymore, but so much of social media I've noticed is – throwback oriented and, oh, and yeah. nostalgic oriented. And sometimes I find that uh, echo chamber to be really distracting when I'm trying to work on a new song or a new record or whatever. So 
if Travis is listening, I, I will start following you again because now I know it's <laughs> it's Travis from Block 13. Block 13 was a fucking great band as, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I was thinking it's it's like there's certain um, shows that happened when we were younger. And I, I don't know. I, I think maybe your experience and my experience somewhat mirror each other because you're a York kid. I'm from Lancaster. Not that different, but we both kind of were establishing bands and establishing our foothold in music at the same time. And then it wasn't until, you know, 2000, 2001, where things kind of split, I think, for us. And we kind of went in different directions. It didn't help that I moved away as well. Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, do you uh, do you kind of look back at that time like fondly or, or was was it more of like a. I need to revise some of this, so I'm going to start my own venue in my garage. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I I look back on some of it fondly, like especially learning the ropes, because like I I remember booking my first show in 1999, like uh, that I did all on my own. I brought my own PA, booked it myself, paid for the venue out of my pocket, and like it was Liberty Fire Hall. I rented it out. Like I had freshly turned 18, so I could sign that contract and do uh -huh. it myself and i and like that was obviously the start of something that i never stopped doing um but i i really i don't know i love looking at his instagram page and seeing the stuff pop up and just being like oh shit i remember that and like like i was kind of referring to earlier like it brings back the flood of memories that i'd sort of filed away um and then also i don't know there's a lot of cool stuff in the, that happened in this area before i was into anything um he just posted something on there and i've seen the pictures before but bikini uh, bikini kill played at the depot in like 1991 and he posted pictures of that oh my god it, i mean it was before they built a stage and like the walls were like light blue like it was not the same place that i knew growing up as like you know being depot. the go-to bar in york yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah um but like just knowing that you know a legendary band like Bikini Kill played the depot three blocks from my house or whatever is just, just insane. Yeah. I always remember, I mean, it, this is a different level, but before Agnostic Front got back together, there were always stories of them playing in, um, uh, Dillers, Dillers, Dillsburg Fire yeah. Hall in, in yeah. the, maybe in the eighties. And then there was, uh, the story of before Rancid like really really popped. So Rancid in early '94, I think they played in Harrisburg, and then you know Fugazi played at the Chameleon once or twice. And yeah, so they're always kind of these stories. And then when we arrived, we're like, all right, well, could our bands play these venues? And people were like, no, yeah, yeah, basically, <laughs> Not good enough. Rich Ruoff, um, Rich Ruoff, who ran the Chameleon at the time, was like adamantly against local punk bands for whatever reason. And so I, I don't know. I always admired that you took the reins of being a promoter as seriously as you did, because it was such a, a relief from the usual shitheads that, you know, or the people like, or even the times that I rented places and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Like you, you always seem to know what the hell you were doing. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think a lot of it's just like putting in the effort and the work, um, which I, I, I think I'm pretty good at doing that, but uh, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes I, I wonder if like staying on it as hard as I have all these years is maybe like preventing somebody else from doing it because the reason I started doing it was because no one else 
what else is doing it? Or, yeah. I mean, there were people doing it, but like they weren't bringing in the bands that I liked. So I was, well, I'm going to book the bands that I want to see, or I want my band to play a show with the unseen. And the only way I can make that happen is to book the unseen myself. Right. Right. Did you at any point, I mean, when you're doing the fire halls, which we all did, it seems as if that's not really a thing anymore. No. Um, and the I don't younger know generations why. like not know that we did that. Do we need to just talk I, about I, it more? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I don't know why, or I don't, I mean, I don't know if the fire halls are just not or cost prohibitive now. Cause like, I mean, back in the day you could rent a fire hall and it was like a hundred bucks, 150 bucks for a diet for a night, which isn't bad. Yeah. Now, I don't know if they're just too much or if it's too much work to bring everything in and haul everything back out. Um, I, and they I typically know. never sounded good, but the vibe in most of those was always good. Yeah. Yeah. They, most of them sounded completely terrible, but like, I mean like Dillsburg fire hall, the reason everybody kept going back there is because they had that, I call it the uh, middle school gymnasium type setup where yeah. it was like, it was basically like a basketball court sized room with a stage at one end that, you know, in a high school, you'd, that's where you would have your, like, um, it's where Michael J. Fox played, you know, yeah. the Chuck Berry riffs at the yeah. dance. Yeah. Or like, exactly I, I forget what they call them. Like the, I don't know, presentations at school or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, or I think plays or whatever, I guess middle schools still do that. It's been, I'm, I'm out of school a long, long time. <laughs> far removed from that yeah but by the time you started doing the shows on your own property at the garage was that just a a temporary thing initially Um, or did you always think yeah i'll just do this until i don't want to do it anymore it was sort of it was sort of a band-aid um in my in my mind like yeah um I, i tell the story the bit the band just die who we had played with on tour a couple times wanted to come through this area on tour and it was a random weekday. It was like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, something like that. Just and die is from Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Um, Boom. And I, I couldn't, I didn't have a place to book them at. Um, all the, all the venues that would have been feasible were just too big for a band that, you know, would draw no heard of. Yeah. Yeah. 40, 50 people on a, a weeknight with a couple locals. So I, I told the guys, I was like, rather than go into one of these bigger rooms where, you know, whatever amount of people is going to feel like an empty room in, in our practice space, it's a small tight room. If 30 or 40 people show up, it's going to feel like, you know, packed house. It's going to be great. And they were all for it. So we just did it. And I think 35, 40 people showed up and paid plus three bands. So, you know, there were roughly 50 people there. And that was the first time just I had played in York, I believe. And they came back three or four times. And like every time, like people came out every time to see them and they, you know, kept coming back. And um, once we had done one show, I started, you know, being in a touring band over the years and booking shows floodgates open, man. Yeah. Yeah. You just, Hey, could I do this? Could you help me out with this? And then not too long after that first, just I show in 2009, um, championship records in Lemoyne 
changed hands and went from a very, very DIY ethics kind of place to a um, more corporate owned. Um, I, I don't know exactly who, I don't know the ownership group. I, I've heard heard all kinds of stuff. I'm not going to speculate, but they started doing a lot of shows where if you wanted to be an opening band, you had to sell tickets. And if you didn't yeah. sell the tickets, you got booted off the show at the last minute. Um, you know, very predatory practices that I don't think are as like, are in use as much right now, but they definitely were very heavily for probably a decade there. Yeah. Um, and that so they did changed not, hands. that pay to play paradigm is all over Los Angeles and, and, uh, and oh, New York. It. And so living there was, and as a singer songwriter, like, you know, like, you know, it's just the worst. And, and I, so I never, I never did it. So therefore I never played yeah. the whiskey or the Roxy or the Viper or any of those places that, that kind of had that built in, but that didn't exist here when we were kids. And I think no. that that's part of the reason why we are as uh, cool as we are, <laughs> or at least yeah. as like, um, as, as, uh, olive branch oriented as we are. Yeah. Especially like, you considering what you've done. Yeah. And like, like that, it, I don't know. It's, it, I use the term, pre, term predatory because it really is like it, like that kind of practice, like just, you go after these young kids that think that, you know, if they put up the 250 bucks or whatever it is for the tickets, they're really getting this great opportunity to open for some band that they've heard of before. And at the end of the day, like, most of those shows ended up with like four or five openers before the tour package of two or three bands. Like no one heard your band. Like yeah. You were playing at five o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. People were just getting off work. They came for the last three or four bands. Um, it worked out really great for the promoters and venues, but uh, um, not, not so much for most of the bands, unfortunately. Yeah. Now I know before they clo- they closed the chameleon club had a much better policy where, like when we opened shows, they would be like, hey, here's 25 tickets. You know, this is what your cost is. Any if you sell these tickets, anything above like if it was a twenty dollar ticket, anything above 15 bucks is what we made. So if we sold 25 tickets, we made one hundred twenty five bucks. And yeah. if not, you know, we gave them back and hey, no harm, no foul. But, you know, if we wanted to make money, we were pushing tickets. And that's that seems very, very ethical. Like, I mean, we did shows there where. We sold 50 or 60 tickets and we ended up making almost as much as like the direct support that was on tour with the headliner. Right. Because, you know, we were out there doing the legwork, but it also meant that, you know, the show was awesome for the headliners. It, it's that is a, a way to get everybody involved in a positive way. Like, hey, you know, you can get paid as much as you want if you want to do the work. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to do the work, you won't get paid. I'm fine with that because you know what? That's how most most real life jobs work. Hey, if you're not going to yeah. do the work, you're not going to have a job here and you won't get paid. Yeah, yeah. Um, I listened to your interview with Dan. Um, I think you did two recently, but I, I only heard the first one. And of course, in typical uh, lazy fashion, I saw that you were featured in the, the York Dispatch newspaper. Yeah. Which yeah. is great. And then, you know, I, I don't know what needs to happen in the world for me to actually pay for a subscription when I click on the link and the thing comes up, like it has to be like the most perfect headline news story that is involving everything of I've ever loved in my life. So I didn't read the article. So I considered that research onto itself. 
No, I, I, it's okay. I didn't even get a free, a free click on that one. I, I paid the, whatever it was for like a six month subscription so I could yeah. read it. Um, uh, supporting local journalism. Yes. Um, so why and how, well, we know how you did the Kickstarter. You've done a couple Kickstarters. Um, why though, did you decide to go from my DIY venue is shut down to, I want to legitimize this venture and have to pay for insurance and have a place to pay rent and do the whole thing. Like what was the impetus behind making such a big jump? Um, I don't know that the, I guess the idea was always there in the back of my head. Like it'd be cool to do this on a bigger scale and be able to do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the garage shut down and, that that night was a flood of emotions. I mean, I I, I remember when the cops should have. I literally walked out like smiling, like, "Hey guys, which car is it?" Because like the cops were at shows numerous times for illegal parking or some yeah. other dumb dumb thing like that, and they were like, "Yeah, no, not tonight." And then I realized most of them were wearing like full like art like you know bulletproof vests and whatever. I was like, "What, what do you guys think you're getting into?" But <laughs> like they they were like, you know, they they came out thinking that like people were gonna make a have a big fight or whatever. I don't know. And everyone was yeah. just like, Oh, this sucks. And basically went home. Um, but, uh, no, like I, I, I mean that night I had a lot of people reach out to me like, Hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I was like, man, I don't know. And, um, I, I think I joked on Dan's podcast that I did a lot of sad drinking that night. Um, which is true. I was <laughs> I, on Dan's podcast. I was in pretty rough shape, but, uh, well, well, well earned though. Well earned. Yeah. And, I, I don't know. Like I like Rob and I had talked numerous times about doing something similar to the garage on a bigger scale. I mean, we'd even joked about buying like a dirt cheap rundown house in New York and dumping 10 or 15 grand into it and doing a space like the kill time in Philly mm-hmm. until we got busted and then just paying the fine and selling the place and, you know, walking away. Um, but you know, I, I talked to um, a handful of people and they were like, if you want to do this right, like, here are the steps and um, like Paul from the virus and razor blade, you know, he's, he owns several businesses now. And I sat down with him with a big yellow notepad, just, you know, talking and making notes and talking and making notes. And um, then Rob and I got together and we're like, you know, if we want to do this, like we can do it. And, you know, fortunately York property can be had for relatively cheap compared to most other places in the area. Um, I mean, most of the properties are in pretty rough shape, but yeah. that's not exactly like a drawback for what will be a punk rock venue. Like, yeah, yeah. So where did you end up? Where is the building? Is it downtown York? Um, yeah, it's downtown York. It's um, 243 West Market Street, which is three blocks from the old Skid Row garage. Yeah. Like you can literally walk straight down the alley and you will walk into our property. Like it's right before you get to the creek, before you go into what is quote unquote downtown York. Mm-hmm. Um by the city standards or whatever. But uh, it's an old building that was um, an Italian restaurant called Sam and Tony's. And it's kind of a corner lot. And it had this yeah. big mural on the side. And like for a long time, I mean, it's, it's a very, very visible, well-known building in New York. It just, unfortunately, um, Sam and Tony's got bought. Not to get into a lot of the legal aspects of Pennsylvania and their liquor licensing, but Sam and Tony's got bought out so that another place could use their liquor license and they didn't need the property. Um, that company was going, they 
kicked around a couple ideas to use the property and then never used it, had it sold or leased a couple times and it never worked out. And eight years later, it was still sitting there vacant. And I mean, if anyone saw any of the pictures, uh, it's gutted like down yeah. to the like even the apartments upstairs, like the, the kitchens and cabinets and everything, vanities, toilets, they're all gone. It's just bare walls with um, water lines, gas lines, drains sticking out of the wall. So it's while it's rough in that regard, it's also like build to suit. It's not like we're going in there and having to do undo a bunch of people's vision. Right. Did you, did you guys buy this building or are you just renting out that floor? Oh, no. We bought the whole thing. Oh, so, shit. Um, well, why did CBGB's close? Their landlord raised the rent. We will I, never have that. Yeah, that that's true. Um, um, and and honestly, like we bought the place for $120,000 and anyone on, that's listening that owns a house probably paid more than $120,000 unless you live in downtown York. <laughs> so $120,000 for a house right now anywhere is practically Im- yeah. impossible. Now, so, I- I'm, I'm going to be honest. By the time we're done, we'll probably have another $100,000 into it just yeah. to, I mean, it's it's bad. Like the first thing we had to do was the, uh, the front part of the building is three stories. The roof was leaking like, like there was a hole in it because there basically yeah. was um, around one of the, I think it's like a toilet exhaust that went up the uh, flashing around that had ripped and it just made a rotten spot and it just dropped. And it was like, we put a five gallon bucket under it and it was filling up about every 25 minutes. Yeah. So we, we made a makeshift funnel into a toilet and let the water just drain and then got the roof fixed as quickly as possible. Um, obviously that, Water damage causes a lot of flooring issues, which is our next step. Um, but um, do you have do you have that skill set? Or I know that you're a carpenter in some respect, but this is a big project. Um, it, it's it's out of my uh, it's it's a bigger project than I probably want to get involved in. Sure. Right now we are like the roofing. We paid somebody to do. We have a guy that's going to come in and do the flooring. Um, we just got to buy the materials. Um, to speed things up, we're throwing money at people that are willing to help and do it for, I don't want to say cost, but a heavy discount. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out and say, Hey, I have this skill set. This is my trade. I will do whatever needed to be needs to be done to help out. So awesome. it's, it's yeah. I have a couple guys that are electricians that are like, Hey, if you need help with like running lighting or whatever, you know, let us know. Um, some of the bigger electrical projects have to be, a, you know, you have to get, permits and everything in the city which is which is fine like that's that's just what you got to do but um on on a good note with the building being a restaurant before and technically our use is a nightclub we're gonna have you know food and drinks as well it doesn't change the zoning at all so until we go doing major major renovations everything that is there is considered even if it's non-compliant with like modern standards it's considered existing non-compliant it's like grandfathered in which is why like in big cities a lot of places get away with bathrooms that you can barely like squeeze your shoulders into Mm -hmm. um so you know we we have a lot of benefits there that it was a restaurant before it was a restaurant and bar before we're going to be doing basically the same thing just switching out fancy dining room with a live music stage um so a lot of benefits there that, you know, we can 
kind of just go in, rehab everything that's existing and not have to do worry about you know jumping through too many hoops legally to keep up. Yeah, I know this is a loaded question. I don't expect you to to give me a full answer now, but beyond just live music, what are you envisioning the Skid Row Garage entailing? Like, are um, you like uh, you know like apartments for bands or, or like it, because so I feel like so many people open music venues that don't necessarily want to operate it in an artist friendly way. It's like business oriented first, but you're coming to it from the other side of of the mirror. So I'm curious what this, what's your vision for this? So this, this place is, I I wish I could do like a video walkthrough and just like do all that, but it, the place doesn't even have Wi-Fi right now. I mean, it barely has electricity. Um, The first floor has electricity, the second floor and third floor don't. I mean, it doesn't have gas or anything hooked up yet either. It's the, the utilities on this have been a nightmare. A building that's been empty eight years is is a headache to buy, apparently. Yeah. Um, but um, the second floor has this really cool setup where I think the the front rooms were like a very, very tiny, like one bedroom, like one room loft apartment where your bedroom, living room, kitchen, dining room were all one big open room mm-hmm. and it had a bathroom. And then there was a what was probably the actual bedroom at one point, And they built a secondary bathroom back there, but they had that locked off. So I think that was like office space and like a shower for like probably whoever ran the bar and wanted to not smell like cigarette smoke when they went home. Because when that place was last open, they allowed smoking inside. Um, But just the way like the doors and stuff and the deadbolts are, I'm like, well, that was sectioned off from that. So that front room, we're going to have kind of be the green room. And um, their old office we're going to use as our you know office when we have it. So we have a spot for like, you know, computers and like planning and, you know, a desk and whatnot. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're gonna have a green room with couches, two full bathrooms for the bands up there. We're going to have a kitchenette. So like, you know, bands will be well taken care of in that regard. And then you can go right down the steps and it'll walk right to the like backstage, like, um, area where you'll have your equipment stored and everything. Um, Sweet. third floor was, a, I mean, probably when it was last redone, I was talking to somebody that lives next door and they said that they last renovated that building in the late eighties. So, and if I showed you a picture of the bathroom up there, you would understand, but the, the bathroom has this big, like double wide soaker jacuzzi tub with two shower heads sticking out of it. And it is raised up in the air. You got to climb four steps to get into it. And all I could think when I walked into there and the plumber that I had in there today said it too. He was like, He's like, somebody had some wild drug and girl parties up here. And I'm like, that's what I'm thinking, too. Because, like, the one shower head, like, if you stand there and take a shower, there's a window right next to it. And you're hanging dong looking out over the back deck. <laughs> well, that's got to stay then. Yeah. Like, that can't but, not be there. I mean, it's super know? cool. and But, like, also, it's like, it's like to get to the bedroom, you have to walk through that bathroom, which is a weird design choice because there's like a 10 foot wall into the hallway where you could put a door into the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to have the only access point for the bedroom being going through the bathroom. But I think that was like a design choice on purpose that somebody did because they were like, this is cool, man. Like all the girls that want to come have to go through the bathroom and like, they're going to be partying in the jacuzzi partying in the bedroom but then like the the front room that overlooks market street is like i guess living room 
dining room kitchen and it's huge. It's the whole width of the building has yeah. six windows, like four go out into like a bay window type thing has like 12 foot ceilings with open rafters and exposed brick wall, hardwood floors, like dated eighties paint job. Yeah. Like, you know, like that's awesome. Like, yeah. It, it, it's like, like when you walk in there, the, the one guy I work with was helping me drag some of the stuff that we had up to the second floor. Cause like I, I work at a hardware store. So like I was, I've been acquiring things over the past seven months that I knew I would need when I could get it for cheap. Like, you know, I got a, ref- I got a refrigerator for dirt cheap because somebody special ordered something returned it because they didn't, they didn't like it, didn't fit whatever. And we couldn't get credit from the company. So what we do then is like employee benefit. Hey, who wants to buy this for next, not next to nothing, but like, like 75% off of what it should have been. So, you know, I've been doing that kind of stuff or like flooring, like, Oh, we got waterproof flooring. Well, every bathroom upstairs is going to need waterproof flooring. I bought all of it when it comes in. So we were lugging that stuff up and he walked up to that third floor and his eyes just lit up. And he's like, he's like, man, when my lease is up in a year, if this is fixed up and available, I want to move in here. I was like, I was like, right. It's that cool. Like, yeah. and he's like a 22 year old kid. Like he, he has no clue what like, you know, Motley Crue did in the eighties, unless he watched the dirt. <laughs> and that's just, you know, what did they say in that movie? It's basically true. <laughs> yeah. So what, what can people do to help you at this point? Like, is um, it still uh, an ongoing campaign? Is it more of a PR campaign in, uh, in terms of, publicizing that you're legitimizing this as a venue and, and how can people help? Um, honestly, like the, the GoFundMe for like the restoration project is still up and running. Um, I, I knew that one wouldn't take off the way the one did back in August, which is fine, yeah. but like every penny helps. I mean, now that we own the building, we have a mortgage to pay, even though it is very, very reasonably priced mortgage, it's still a mortgage that we got to pay mm-hmm. while we're not making money we're, we got to pay taxes on the building and, on top of all of that, we're dumping again thousands and thousands of dollars into getting this place up and running. Sure, um, sure. I, I think we'll be able to do soft opening within a few months, where it won't be a completed project, but you know enough of it will be completed that we can say we're functional. You know, we have bathrooms, we can give you food and drink, and the the, the stage is set. Uh, you know, will the deck be sanded and re- restained? No. Will the will the fence around the the deck be redone? No. It's still going to have plywood over parts of it where people broke in to have parties over the past eight years. Yeah. Um, you know, will it be rough around the edges? Absolutely. Will it always be rough around the edges? Yes. It's a yes. music venue. Hell um, yes, brother. I mean, well, that's that's great. Well, I'll be sure to include the link, obviously, in the description of this podcast, but um, you know, and all the Instagram stuff and and everything as well. Yeah. But I'm really proud of you. I mean, I'm excited that you're doing it selfishly because, you know, I, I live here again and this will be a cool way for us to reconnect. Yeah. But uh, just as a friend, as somebody who's yeah, you know, and, been in this music thing for a long time, I'm, I really am truly proud of you for oh. uh, taking on this endeavor and championing this idea when so many of us never never even did it again after that first or second show, you know? Yeah. Well, I I appreciate that. I mean, I I think it's important. Like we grew up like going to shows. I mean, I remember every weekend it was like, am I going to York, Harrisburg, Lancaster? Where am I going for shows? I mean, I we'd run. And unfortunately right now, you know, the Lancaster lost the chameleon, but 
Telus has been doing a lot of stuff. Uh, what is it? Phantom Power out in Millersville is doing a lot of cool stuff. Harrisburg has JB Love Drafts um, and their brewery across the river. How do you see Skid Row Garage and York playing into uh, the synergy between what's happening in Harrisburg and what's happening in Lancaster? Because like you said, so much of that when we were younger, it, depending on the availability of venues and fire halls that were still letting us promote shows and everything. It was always kind of a, it was like almost like a territorial system where there'd be a few months in Lancaster, a few months in York, a few months in, in Harrisburg. And now it seems like every place except York has consistent music venue representation. So is your hope to kind of provide that, that stability for York County or is it more of a, you want to be more of a focused kind of national act attracting venue. Um, my goal with the garage is mainly to be a, a our hope for the, uh, the, 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 when we get our capacity in, we're, we're hoping for a number that is a little bit bigger than JB love drafts, downtown location. And, um, the West York in here in York does, um, some shows, does a lot of shows lately too, out in West York. Um, our number should be, bigger than them, which is really needed. There, there's that, there's a lot of places where you can get like 90 to hundred people, like the sidebar in Baltimore, that kind of venue. And there's a lot of places that you can shove three, four 500 people in, but there's not many places that were, that are the size of like the lizard lounge at the chameleon, where it was like 175 to 225, 250. We're yeah. hoping that that's where our capacity comes in at. Um, which based on square footage and bathrooms, we should be close to that. Um, but I'm hoping we can get fall into that where it's a size venue where, you know, maybe bands start out playing the smaller rooms consistently. And then this will be like the next step mm-hmm. where we can help out like, oh, like, like just die. They could come in and they could play a small room. And then by the third time they're playing here, they're moving up. Um, I, I'm, I have a list of, uh, to answer the question about nationally kind of stuff, I have a list of like 75 or 80 um, booking agencies or like people to reach out to, to be like, Hey, we're up and running. This is our number. This is what we're doing. This is where we are. And this is what I've done in the past. Like I'm not just some fly by night idiot um, so that we will start getting some of the touring bands that might have otherwise gone to, Harrisburg or Lancaster or, or skip this area altogether and just did Baltimore or Philly where maybe we can give them a better deal because I mean if you play Philly on a Saturday night you're up against probably 10 other live music acts minimum whereas sure. you play York you're up against nobody else in York maybe a show in Lancaster and a show in Harrisburg but I, I can tell you from doing shows in York when there's a show in Harrisburg or Lancaster there's enough people in this area to support both um, so yeah, we're hoping that one, we can find a kind of find that sweet spot of, of size wise where it's big enough that we can get some of the bigger small acts um, or, or some of the yeah. smaller big acts that or or even some of the big acts playing on a weekday where, you know, they might sell out a venue in Philly on a Saturday for a thousand or fifteen hundred, but they could sell out a Wednesday night in York of 200 and it still feels like a, you know, you're still playing a sold out show. Yeah. It's only 200 people, but 
I've been in a band and I'd much rather play in front of 200 people where it's a, a room that holds 200 people versus 200 people in front of a room that holds a thousand and it looks empty because right. 200 people in a room that holds a thousand feels like 50 people. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think you're onto something, man. I, I cannot wait to see this. So thanks. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. And thanks for coming on the yeah. podcast. man. No, thank you for having me. It's good talking to you. Yeah. And there you have it, my conversation with MC Heiser from the Skid Row Garage. Be sure to follow Skid Row Garage on Instagram, and there you'll see a link. As well as in the podcast description of this podcast episode, you will find a couple links to financially support or just, you know, spiritually good vibes support Matt and his endeavor to legitimize and open the Skid Row Garage music venue in York, Pennsylvania this summer. Hell yes. Thanks for tuning in to the Berman Hour Podcast. I'll see you all next week. Let's go.